on guitar. And you're listening to the Independence News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton, the Indies editor in chief. I'm joined today by my indie colleague, Julia Thomas. Julia, it's great to have you joining us as co host. Yeah, thanks so much, John. Um, it's great to be with you and all our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Yes, and in our first segment, uh, New York is on the verge of enacting historic legislation to legalize marijuana and create a legal market for it to be bought and sold. Legisla- legislative leaders and Governor Andrew Cuomo reach a, reached a framework agreement last week. At this very moment, it's being considered by the state Senate where the Democrats hold a large majority. Our next guest, Stephen Wishnia, is well-versed in the subject, to say the least. He's covered it for years. But before we go to him, Julia, I understand you were poking around on YouTube last night and found a clip from an infamous propaganda film from the 1930s called Reefer Madness. Yeah, that's right, John. I, I watched this film last night, and it's a really fascinating sort of reflection of this, you know, kind of government-backed, you know, uh, hysteria and fear that was created around marijuana. Um, Reefer Madness came out in 1936, one year before the U.S. government listed marijuana as a dangerous narcotic. And listening to this clip is really a reminder of how anti-weed hysteria got going, and we're only now disentangling ourselves from it. Here's the thought. You... And all the school parent groups about the country. And you must stand united on this and stamp out this frightful assassin of our youth. You can do it by bringing about compulsory education on the subject of narcotics in general. The great marijuana in particular. That is the purpose of this meeting, ladies and gentlemen. To lay the foundation for a nationwide campaign by you to demand by law such compulsory education. Because it is only through enlightenment that this scourge can be wiped out. Well, it took uh, way too long, but a change is finally coming. Joining us today to talk about it is Stephen Wishnia. He's covered the drug war for many years for The Independent and other publications. He's also the author of The Cannabis Companion. Steve, it's great to have you on the show with us today. Yeah, it's great to be on. Thanks. Sure. So uh, um, from your perspective, what are, what are the uh, most important elements of this uh, legislation? Uh, and, and, and how good of a job do you think it might do in, in, in addressing concerns about racial equity and, um, and, and, and ensuring that legalized marijuana in New York won't be controlled by a handful of big corporations? Uh, what, are the, what are the odds for this looking like? Well, I'd say the biggest thing is just that it legalizes it. You know, it was only 10 years ago that we were in the Michael Bloomberg stop and frisk era where there were, you know, 50,000 people a year getting arrested for either possession of very small quantities of pot or smoking on the street. The overwhelming majority, you know, young black and Latino men. So, you know, in 10 years, we've gone to voting on legalization. So just that it's legal, it's going to set up a legal market is the biggest thing. How effective it's going to be at you know, keeping it from being dominated by corporations, I don't know. There are provisions in it 
Uh, one is a goal for 50% of licenses for businesses to go to equity applicants. Uh, there's some efforts to uh, limit you know, the number of large operators. There's a ban on vertical integration, except for micro businesses, which is the way alcohol is regulated in New York State since prohibition has been. You can either be a manufacturer, a brewer, or a dealer. You can be a distributor, like a beer distributor, or you can is that if you have a, a microbrewery, you you know have a pub in it where people can you know drink sample beer, and that's the way. Uh, this law is going to be structured so you don't have to you know, doing all three levels with marijuana. Cuomo several years ago. Right. Uh, right. And and Stephen, I, I'm I'm curious also what you think about, you know, um just when thinking about you know what the product cycle of legalized marijuana will look like. Um you know, from the grow room to the dispensary, can you describe to us what um, what that will look like based on what we've seen in other states? Uh, I don't know yet, uh, you know, but it's obviously it's grown and there is fairly high security requirements. Uh, you know, one of the things about being legal is that growing indoors takes an incredible amount of electricity because people are using, you know, 600 watt light bulbs, 1000 watt light bulbs to simulate sunlight. And which uses an incredible amount of electricity. Uh, but if it, if security requires it to be grown indoors, uh, that's where the facilities will be also for year round operation in New York state where there's winter, it'll have to be indoors. Uh, you know, then it's processed, then it'll be distributed, and then it'll be retailed. So, you know, it's a three-step system. The regulation, there are other states such as Colorado that require, you know, every step to be videotaped, you know, so that nobody pockets it and a, it's not being diverted elsewhere. That's something that's going to increase costs and probably make it harder for small operators to be involved rather than large companies because, you know, you have a whole video camera on your garden that's going to cost a lot of money. Right. And uh, can you talk about the the provision that would allow uh, people to grow as many as uh, six plants uh, on on their own? Um, You know, what, what, what are the prospects for that? Is that something that maybe will be of more use to people outside the city? Probably. I mean, you know, people outside the city have backyards and gardens. They might have a bigger house so they could put a light in their closet. Uh, You know, that's sort of a perennial, you know, area of contention in legalization bills. It's one of the things that Governor Cuomo opposed. And, you know, one of the things that sank, you know, marijuana legalization in 2019 I remember I wrote an article for The Independent probably January or February two years ago that said the question is not if, but when, but how. And the issue of how sank it. One of the issues was, you know, whether home growing should be allowed. So that's in, you know, six plants is not a whole lot. But, you know, 
if you want, you can. Uh, it'd probably make more of a difference outside of the city where people have more space to garden. I don't know if, you know, you're going to people in like community gardens are going to be planting, you know, three pot plants for one thing. If it's out in the open, you know, people can steal it pretty easily. Right. And, and Stephen, thinking about, I guess, sort of this, you know, the toll of this war on marijuana, you know, what has that been? What is the, what is the impact of that kind of, um, war on marijuana been for for people here in, in the city and why do you think it's taken so long to get to this point in New York State and do you think it's fair to say that Cuomo in the midst of this political turmoil he's in uh, the serious political trouble do you think that he's sort of embraced this more progressive version of marijuana reform because of the threat of you know impeachment looming, looming over him I don't know you know, I'm, I don't have that kind of access to him, but, you know, I suspect that because he's you know, politically weakened, he decided that whatever he disagreed with in this bill, that his office said, well, the differences really aren't that big, which might have been just, you know, covering, I don't know, but I suspect it's just something that he decided not to fight on, you know. On this, yeah, I mean, it's been a huge toll. There's not a whole lot of people who actually go to prison for marijuana. They're generally, you know, smugglers or growers. Uh, federal laws, there's a five-year mandatory minimum for, uh, you know, 100 plants or more. What it people have said it works as is it's an entry-level bust Uh you know, primarily in the city and around the country for young Black and Latino men. Uh, so it's an entry-level bust, you know, which could cost them a job if you get arrested and you're two days in jail and you miss work and you can't call in. Or if you call in, oh, I got arrested for pot last night. Uh, I can't come into work today. You know, that are you going to, you're going to have a hard time keeping your job unless you're lucky. Uh, so it's, that kind of damage, but also it's an entry-level bust. So your name, your picture, your fingerprints are in the system. And then if you get arrested for something else, it's no longer a first offense. Oh, this guy's got priors. So that's you know the kind of, it's kind of damage that brings people into the criminal justice system where you know maybe 95% you know won't do you know any other crime, but they you know get suffer for the 5% who do. And I'm just pulling those numbers out of the air. But, you know, the point is that a lot of innocent people get picked up along with, uh, you know, ones who would do something in the future. Right. And, and, and you've written yeah, before. I mean, there's literally like, you know, at the height of the stop and frisk era, uh, I mean, let me go back in history a bit more. Up until the mid-1990s, it was really a low priority for New York police. Uh, they had plenty of other things to deal with. And in the mid-90s, really once crime dropped fairly significantly by like 1996 or so, the Giuliani administration decided to make possession of marijuana, especially possession of marijuana by young Black and Latino men, a top priority for police. So uh, the numbers went from like, you know, less than 10,000 arrests a year, maybe even less than you know, 3,000 to 
by 2000, there were 70,000 arrests for possession of marijuana. Uh, and it continued at a pace of, you know, 30, 40,000 a year, you know, peaked again at over 50,000 at the height of the Bloomberg stop and frisk policies. Uh, as you know, there's a figure about stop and frisk that I forget the exact number that said only like, you know, one out of every, you know, 12 stops or one out of every eight stops, you know, actually led to an arrest. Uh, and I suspect that out of those arrests, probably half of them, you know, were for, for pot. So the number of arrests made by random stop and frisk, you know, would have been, you know, even a smaller percentage without pot. So, yeah, it was a huge part of that. And it's, why has it taken so long? I think one is that, you know, people saw the demographics of it, that how, you know, blatantly racist the arrest policy was, that, you know, Black people, Latinos were being arrested at a much higher rate than, you know, white people or Asians. And that's a pattern that's all over the country. It's not just New York, but... You know, a place like you know, Minneapolis, it was like black people were 10% of the population and 60% of those arrested for pot. You know, Atlanta, which is heavily black, Chicago. It was a pattern that was all over the country. And then another thing, it's just like, I think it's one of these sort of like dam burst kind of phenomenon. Like, you know, sexual harassment was a huge thing. I mean, you know, I'm 66 years old and I've known women, been friends with women for a long time. And I'd have a hard time thinking of, you know, any woman I know who's never complained about being sexually harassed. You know, why did it just, you know, become a huge thing, you know, in the last few years with Me Too? It's just the pressure built up to a point and it just cracked. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that happened with, you know, over the last 10 years with, you know, first with medical more like 25 years ago and then, you know, Colorado and Washington legalizing it in 2012. The sky didn't fall in. And the one thing about Steve, uh, marijuana is, yeah. Yeah. We're going to have to wrap up in about a minute or so, Uh, but I I just wanted to ask you one more quick question before we have to go. Um, uh, We're going to be talking more about unions in the, in the next couple of segments to, what are the prospects that the marijuana industry uh, here in New York uh, may see some unionization? I understand it's happened in some states and in other states it's been thwarted. I uh, I think it's you know good for the larger operators. Uh, there's a labor peace clause in the bill that any applicant for a license has to stay neutral in you know if there's a union campaign. And for employers with 25 or more workers, the state has to give priority to the applicants that are union shops and or were built by union labor. So those are good. You know, so unlike, say, some of the chains in a place like Illinois, you know, a pot retailer will not be allowed to have captive audience meetings to discourage people from joining the union. Uh, in New York, which has happened in Illinois. Right. Uh, you know, Colorado is, you know, very little, if any, unionization. Uh, California, it's more. So in New York, you know, most of the medical, you know, there's only 10 
20 or so medical dispensaries, 20 or 30, and probably between a third and two thirds are unionized now. Okay. Uh, United Food Commercial Workers, Retail Workers, which is a uh, RWDSU, which is the union that's trying to organize Amazon. Yes. It's the main union in the state that's organizing them. So I'd say the prospects are you know, pretty good for unionization in the state, but it you know may take a few years. And it'll Alrighty. probably be the larger operators than the smaller ones. Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But Stephen Wishney, a longtime reporter for The Independent, has covered uh, this long battle for marijuana legalization for many years. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. All right. Thank you very much.